So we're turning to 1 Timothy 3 just to read there, but we will be coming back to Acts 6. So if you have a marker, uh, you could maybe get it in to Acts chapter 6 as well as 1 Timothy 3. Put a marker there too. And we trust the Lord will bless His Word to us. We'll just bow in prayer before I read, and then we'll come to the Lord's message. Let's bow together, please. Let's seek God's face. Our Heavenly Father and our everlasting God, we come before Thee in the name of Thy Son. We thank Thee for the one who is the head of the church, the one who has instituted its offices and who raises up men to serve in those offices. And we come to Thee and pray that Thy Word will be of guidance and will be of clear instruction to Thy people O Lord, speak to all of our hearts. We pray, Lord, as Thy Word refers to it for that Word and season, for every heart. O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt come and minister unto us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, cleanse my heart, fill me with the Holy Ghost. Come down upon the entire company. Bless those who join with us online. O Lord, how we pray that everything will redound to Thy glory and to the praise of Thy marvelous and wonderful name. O Lord, grant help now. We pray this for Christ's sake and in His name alone. Amen and amen. 1 Timothy 3, and we'll read from verse 8 in this chapter, which begins the section in 1 Timothy 3 on the office of the deacon. So verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then we'll turn over to Acts chapter 6 and please keep your minds fixed on 1 Timothy 3. But in Acts chapter 6 we'll just read a few verses there as well and we trust the Lord will bless these verses to your hearts. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men, of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And God will bless the reading of His truth to all of our hearts. Now, the office of the deacon was the Lord's answer to the effort of Satan to harm the work of God. Acts 6 and verse number 1 contains these words, in those days the number of the disciples was multiplied. It's a reference to what was happening in those early New Testament times. God's work was advancing rapidly because of the mighty movements of the Holy Spirit. Thousands were uh, being converted to Jesus Christ. Among the converts, there was a diversity in terms of background and culture. Notice in verse number 1, a reference to the Grecians. They were Greek-speaking Jews who had come from various nations uh, to Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. Many, many of them were converted, were saved. They remained in Jerusalem. They enjoyed the blessing of God. They made that their residence, at least as far as this time is concerned. Then in verse 1, we also read of the Hebrews, which again is a reference to Jews, but the Hebrew-speaking Jews from Jerusalem and Judah. 
And so we have two bands of Jewish people uh, mentioned in verse number 1. But what we find is that at the early stage of this whole work of God that was taking place, both groups initially enjoyed great unity of heart and soul and mind with regard to the work of God in spite of their cultural and even national differences. Their unity was there because they focused on Christ. They focused on the Lord Jesus. That was their strength and their unifying force. However, the attack of Satan came, as it always does, and it came in the form of seeking to undermine that unity by stirring up a murmuring between the Grecians and the Hebrews. The closing words here of verse number 1 of Acts chapter 6 states, or state that there was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews due to the neglect of the Grecian widows in the daily ministration. The word neglected is used. Now that word means overlooked. And while there is nothing in the word to suggest that the action of overlooking these widows was deliberate or was a conscious decision to do so, yet at least there was carelessness and there was thoughtlessness involved. And that led to this murmuring. It engendered the murmuring. It doesn't take much, you know, to get murmuring going among Christians. And while we don't know all the details, certainly, as I said, there was at least a carelessness about the whole matter of looking after these widows, and therefore the murmuring arose. The serious outcome was that the Lord's work was placed in danger. Murmuring will always do that. The root of the problem was that the temporal and the practical issues were allowed to become divisive and threaten the spiritual life of the church. Now, it is important just to underline and to understand that material issues in the work of God are not beneath spiritual dignity. They deserve dignity. And the Word of God indeed calls upon us to treat even the most mundane thing about the work of God in terms of the practical, the, uh, the uh, material side of things, to treat it all with dignity. I think of those great words in Psalm 102, verses 12 or 13 and 14, where it says, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. Then it goes on to say, For thy servants had pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. Now, there's not much value in stones or dust, comparatively speaking. And yet we find there that in a day when God was moving and God was working and God was blessing, having favor in Zion, one of the signs was that there was a regard placed upon the very stones and dust of the place called Zion. And so what we find, as I've, as I've already put it, is this, that those areas of the material, the financial, and so forth, they are not beneath spiritual dignity and spiritual esteem. Rather, they have an integral part in the life of the ministry of the church of Jesus Christ and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. And even the material, the most mundane material issue in the work of God is all intended to contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God. I dealt with that to quite a degree last Sunday morning. And therefore, prayerful, spiritual, prudent, careful management of the temporal, the material, and the practical will be a help, not a hindrance, to the work of the gospel. And so we must be careful not to allow any breakdown in handling these matters for them, therefore, in a breakdown of handling them, to become a gateway to allow the devil to come marching in with his troops, as it were, to divide the people of God. And that's what, exactly what the devil was trying to do here in Acts chapter 6. The point is, that the diaconate 
the board of deacons that we see being elected in this chapter, the diaconate was formally established in the New Testament church to ensure the proper functioning of the church's physical life and guard against the inroads of the devil. And so with the elders ruling wisely and the deacons working wisely, this was God's answer to the subtlety of the devil and to the attack of the devil and to the inroads that he was seeking to make. And so the church here chose deacons because that was the vital way of safeguarding the work of the Lord at that particular time. In Acts 6 verse 1, the words, the daily ministration, literally read the daily deaconery. The daily deaconery. In the sense of the physical sustenance of these widows who were needy and were being neglected. And the point is that deaconery was already in place to some degree or the principle of it was already being discharged. But then with the election of these men, what we find is that the deaconery was properly established. It was codified in terms of an office being formed in that formal way and occupied by men who were suited for the task. So it's not that there wasn't some attention being given. It's not that there wasn't a deaconary in principle being exercised. It's the matter of it being codified and formalized by the election of these men. And so the saints saw the wisdom of this arrangement. As you see there in verse number 5, in the first part of the verse it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. So the people of God were, they were pleased. They saw the wisdom of this arrangement, this call for men to be put into the office of the deacon. And then they exercised their right to choose their own deacons, as verse number six, or sorry, verse number five also says, and they chose Stephen, etc. And then we find, as I showed you last week, and we really concentrated on it to some degree last week, God's work went forward. Verse 7, and the Word of God increased, and so forth. And so in that way, the murmuring was stopped, and the devil's attempts were thwarted, and the people of God went forward in unity and in harmony once again, and all of this was taken care of in this particular way. So the office of the deacon is strategic, along with the office of the elder. It's strategic to the whole life of the church of Jesus Christ. It must be in place, and it must be occupied by men chosen by the members of the congregation. In that, I say to you now, all members of this church should seek the Lord's mind on who will be chosen and who will occupy this office. And I come therefore to you with the Word of God that He has placed upon my heart uh, for this particular service this morning. I trust the message that I will now bring to you by the Lord's help, and I need the Lord's help, of course always, but certainly now, that that message will be used to give you guidance. Guidance to you as you pursue the goal and you choose men to serve Jesus Christ in the office of the deacon. There are two main points I wish to make. Number one, the standard that marks the office of deacon. Now the scripture that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 lays down a series of standards, a set of criteria if you want to put it that way, in relation to the office regarding a man's moral and spiritual and ethical life. All of those matters are covered in what is said there in verses 8 to 13 of 1 Timothy 3 about the standards concerning the office of the deacon. And certainly, I would urge you, urge upon you the need to read those verses and pray over them very, very carefully in these days and setting out to choose men for this office. But there's one overarching standard that Scripture lays down for the office of the deacon. And it's a very simple one. And it's simply this. It is service for Jesus Christ. 
That's why we sang those two hymns this morning, because they underline the matter of serving the Lord. Service of the highest quality and the highest intensity, that's the standard that is set, of course, for all Christians with regard to living for the Lord, serving, doing the will of the Lord, whatever it might be, it is that we set out to serve Him with all of our hearts and souls and minds. But certainly for men who are going to occupy the office of the deacon, this is a standard that is set by God in a very clear way. I want you to turn to Romans 12 with me, please, just at this stage. Turn back in your Bibles into the book of Romans just before the book, sorry, after the book of Acts, I should say, turn forward to the book of Romans and to chapter 12, and look with me at that chapter. Just in a glance, what is Romans 12 all about? Well, it's a chapter that lays out the Christian's responsibility. That's how you sum up Romans 12. The Christian's, the believer's responsibility. There are three sections to it. In verses 1 to 3, we have the believer's spiritual responsibility. Romans 12, 1 to 3. I'm not going to expound this, of course, for I don't have time. But just to give you the division that's in the chapter. Verses 1 to 3, the whole chapter is about your responsibility as a Christian. Verses 1 to 3, your spiritual responsibility. That is to give yourself up to God, body and soul. Then verses 4 to 8, the believer's ecclesiastical responsibility, because those verses deal with our responsibilities within the visible church. And then verses 9 to 21, the believer's charitable responsibility, we are to show love and to show a care and, and to show a desire to look after one another in the work of God. So that's how you divide the chapter. Now, for the purposes of this message today, look in the second section in verses 48 at our ecclesiastical, our church responsibility, and look at verse number 7, part A. It says this, "'Render therefore to all their Jews, tribute to whom tribute is due.'" Sorry, I'm in chapter 13 there. Uh, I looked at the wrong page. Verse 7 says, Our ministry, let us wait on our ministry. I want you to stay with those words for a moment. Our ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Now, in the original text, both words, ministry and ministering, are forms of the Greek word for deacon. And that means that in every instance of its usage, actually, the root sense of the word deacon is that of ministering or service, because the word for deacon could be translated as servant or a minister. In fact, it is very, very often. The Greek word I mean. And so you read these words here in verse number 7 of Romans 12, or deaconary. Let us wait on our deaconary. Or service, let us wait on our service, or deacon itself, just putting that word in there. And so there are many ways these words could be translated. Now here's the vital thing. These words are addressed to all Christians at this point in Romans chapter 12, signifying that all believers, male and female, have a deaconary or a service to perform in some way or in some particular arena. Every Christian here this morning in the sight of God is a deacon in that broad sense of the use of the Word as we find it right here. And so this point is borne out in many, many New Testament verses with reference to this matter of deaconery or service. Let me just take you through some of the verses. And I want to do this because in a very deliberate way, I want you to see how the word is used and how the whole thought and meaning of the word deacon is used. It does underline the standard of service. Now, the matter of deaconry is actually seen in various spiritual realms. We find that the word is used of angels. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse number 11, it says concerning the Lord and his attack by the devil, Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Angels came and ministered unto Christ. And the word there is in the verb form. They ministered like deacons to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been under the attack of the devil. He has hungered and thirsted for 40 days and 40 nights. He has faced the final three great temptations, the last onslaught of the devil, and then the devil left him as he was conquered, and the angels came. And they ministered to the Savior. They acted as deacons to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you today, He is the one who is the object of all true service. That is our Savior. So you find the word there essentially in the ministry of the angels. Then Hebrews 1.14. Another great statement about the angels. And it says in Hebrews 1 and the verse number 14 that angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation. And here we have it. Angels are deacons not only to Christ, but angels are deacons unto the saints of God. They're sent forth by the Lord. This is the realm of the Lord's providence. The angels are all around us. The Bible makes that clear. When we meet here this morning in this house of God, do you understand that the angels are actually here? It should cause you to be filled with awe. Those holy spiritual beings are right in the worship services of God's people. You might say, how do you know that? I simply read 1 Corinthians 11. And it tells you there in plain terms that the angels are present when the saints gather for worship. And that is why ladies are to have their heads covered. That's one reason why they're to have their heads covered. It's clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 11 because the angels are present. And so they're present in our worship assemblies. It's the angels who act as deacons to carry your souls to glory when you die because they're sent forth to minister to the saints. And I keep on mentioning ways in which angels act as deacons to the saints of God. I haven't time to do that. But there's the word used with regard to their ministry. They are God's deacons and His providence unto the saints. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ, I mentioned this last week, when He went to the cross, when He was dying for our sins, He was there to minister. He didn't come into the world to be ministered unto, but He came to minister and give His life a ransom for many. How privileged the saints are. Angels minister to us. Christ ministers to us. He's a deacon to us. The angels are deacons to us. We're seeing how the Word is used, the sense of it, this whole matter of vital and, and necessary spiritual service for the good and the well-being of the whole work of God. Paul used the word in Acts 20, 24 as he talks about his own ministry. He uses it again in Romans eleven thirteen, where he says, I magnify mine office. And the word for office is the same word as is translated deacon or deaconry. Therefore, Paul had an office of preaching in which he was ministering to people the Word of God, and both Jew and Gentile for that matter. He says in Romans 15, 25, I go to Jerusalem to minister. And then here in Acts chapter 6, I can only run through these verses and mention them. In Acts chapter 6, it refers to the apostles saying, or referring to the ministry of the Word. Verse number 4, we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so in a practical, in a very practical way, when a man stands up to preach, he is a deacon under God to bring the Word to minister it, to apply it, to teach it, to explain it, to expound it. This is how the Word is used of angels, of Christ, of the mighty apostle, of these men in Acts chapter 6 who were also apostles. 
And of course it is true to say, and I must say this at this moment, these are not instances of the office of the deacon that's in view in these verses here specifically or in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But the significance of all these verses is that they signify the gift of serving. And that's the real concept of the word deacon. Given a gift to serve in a certain way in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the whole church should be an agency of service to God. The church of God is a spiritual communion. It's the Lord's mystical body. It's united to Him by the Holy Ghost. But it's the agency by which the Lord works in this world. Because the Lord takes men and women and He uses them and He makes them His servants. He makes them His deacons in that particular sense. And therefore, there actually are no exceptions to this rule, to this very fact that every Christian is actually privileged by God to serve or to minister. Hebrews 6 verse 10, listen to what Paul said to the Hebrews. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And again, the words for ministered and minister are derivatives of this verb that means to serve or to act as a deacon. Or 1 Peter 4 verse 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 12, a very vital passage in relation to what we're thinking about, the church, offices, service, all of these particular matters that pertain to that realm. I trust that you're seeing, brethren and sisters, that the whole work of the deacon, the whole office of the deacon, is not some trivial issue. It's not treated lightly in the Word of God. It's not treated scantily. The Word is used everywhere in all these realms. Now look at 1 Corinthians 12 and the verse number 5. And it says this, There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And the Greek word for administrations is that same basic Greek word that means deaconeries. And so in the one body, this is a reference to the body of the Lord, the whole church to the Lord, and in that body of people there are different gifts, and there are also different administrations. They're all under the control of the same Lord. There's just one head, one governor, but there are many, many administrations. And it's this word again that means deaconries. And so many ministries to be performed by all the members so that the whole body will function properly. When you read 1 Corinthians 12, and read it carefully, because you will find down through that chapter that the Apostle Paul takes the analogy of the human body and he applies it to the church of Christ. Now, in your body, you have many members. I mean physical members of your body, your arms, your legs, your head, your ears, etc. You know what I'm talking about. And Paul takes all that in 1 Corinthians 12, and he applies it to the church. That is the basic foundational reason why Christians should be members of a local church. I often, along with our session, Mr. Stewart, when we interview people for membership, the very first thing we do is explain to those people what church membership is all about. Why is there church membership? And it's this. When you were saved, because you must be saved to be a member of a congregation, a Christian church, but when you were saved, you became a member of the body of Christ, the whole company of the redeemed. And becoming a member of a local church, in that sense, taking out communicant membership, as we call it, is you testifying and is a reflection of what happened when God saved you. 
And therefore, a Christian should want to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ in order to bear testimony and reflect the fact that you're the Lord's. It's a way of doing it, a way of showing that you belong to Christ. And that's the whole undergirding subject of 1 Corinthians 12. All those who are saved are members of Christ's body, just like your limbs, your different organs are members of your physical body. Paul takes that analogy and uses it. And and that means, therefore, that all Christians are part of the body of Christ. And that means all Christians are to serve because there are many administrations, it says there. You have a work to do. You have a service to render for the people of God. God's work is not done by one or two. All Christians must serve. There should be no fringe spectators. Christians standing by and saying, well, I'll just let them do it. No, my friend, get the right view of this whole matter. God requires of you that heart and soul and mind and time and energy and effort are to be put into His work for the glory of God and the furtherance of His kingdom. We saw that last week, but it bears repeating. It bears emphasis once again because we're finding here that the whole church is an agency of service unto God and every Christian should want to be part of a true Bible-believing church in that sense to reflect who you are and what you are in Jesus Christ. There are individuals spoken of in the other verses that I want to take you to now who serve the Lord in wonderful little ways. And I hope this will encourage you when you see this. In Mark 1.31, I just mentioned the verse, and it's the story of, of Peter's mother-in-law when the Lord healed her. And it says in Mark 1.31, He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and she ministered unto them. And my friend, notice that. There's a portrayal. There indeed is a picture. There's a little parable in action of the Lord saving a soul. And as soon as that woman was healed, representing the salvation of the sinner, she began to serve. You've often heard we're saved to serve. Sometimes it gets worn out that and becomes a bit of a cliche, but there's an awful depth of truth in it. We are saved to serve. And Peter's mother-in-law, as soon as the Lord raised her up, she began to minister to Christ and to the others. And the word for ministered there is this same word that we're thinking about today, that I am taking pains to explain to you and have you understand what it means. Take Martha, John 12 and verse number 2. They made him a supper. But then it says this, Martha served. She's the one who took on the role of ministering. You know, there's a parallel to that in Luke 10. That other time when it says that in Martha's house they made the Lord a supper and there Martha was cumbered about much serving. But the point is, at least she was trying to serve. You have to give her credit where credit was due. I know she missed out. I know there's a problem there. And she got angry with Mary. But the point is, Martha was doing what she could, at least in serving. And so, there are all these little snippets of information that lie within many, many verses that have us see very, very clearly that having a deaconry is used of individual Christians who serve the Lord like Peter's mother-in-law. You know, sometimes we're hard on mothers-in-law, but here's a mother-in-law, and she loved the Lord because the Lord had raised her up, and she wanted to serve Him. And oh, for mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law and sons-in-law and daughters-in-law and all kinds of people in all the different relationships of life, all of us serving Jesus Christ, being deacons, serving the Lord. Now, From that body of people, and we've seen how the word is used, but from that body of people who are the Lord's people, who are all to be serving Him, we find that Christ sets men apart to exercise the office of deacon. 
All that biblical detail and data that I've given you on the use of the word deacon and its derivatives converge on this issue. In the New Testament, there is an office entitled the office of the deacon. I showed you that from 1 Timothy 3, last Lord's Day. Therefore, the office of the deacon encapsulates and demonstrates this issue of the unstinted service that should mark the entire congregation. What is the deacon board? To use that expression, that's fine. Committee, whatever. What exactly is it? It's a body of men who are officially organized to devote themselves to serve the Lord in overseeing the temporal, material, physical, financial needs and matters of the church of Jesus Christ. And with that standard of wholehearted service, identifying what they are to do, it must mark that office. And so that's the standard. It is unstinted service for the work of God, for the cause of Christ. It all devolves into this matter that when things are in order and things have been well done, it contributes to the whole life and forward movement of the church of Jesus Christ in terms of His redemptive purposes in this world. But I want now to speak to you on some stipulations that mark the office of the deacon. We looked at the standard that should characterize that office and those in that office, characterizing all Christians, again I emphasize. But the stipulations that mark the actual office. Well, turn here to Acts 6. Maybe you're still there. So look at Acts 6. And look at verse number 3. And here is the guidance given by these apostles who, remember, were elders as well. And so the elders here are giving guidance. And they say, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you. Mention seven men. Now, the verb there, every word is important. And so that verb is where it says, look ye out. The verb look out means to seek out. It signifies actually to view, to inspect. And so the Lord is telling through the elders here, He's telling His people, they're to consider the matter very, very carefully. The inference is that there not only were men already prepared by God, but men, they were men who already had proved themselves before the Lord in serving Him in some capacity. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, they said here, look ye out among you. And so they're saying, there are men among you already. I, I have men already prepared. And I want you to look for them. The Lord doesn't come and put a mark on them. You may have heard the story of Spurgeon. Another matter altogether, but illustrates the point when in his day he was vehemently opposed by these hyper-Calvinists who said to him, you should not be preaching the gospel to all men without distinction. You should only be preaching the gospel to the elect. What a foolish thing to say. But they said it. And Spurgeon's famous reply was, you put an axe mark on every elect man and I'll preach to him. You see, my dear friend, God no more identifies the alike by putting a mark on them or anybody else putting a mark on them than He identifies men by putting a mark on them of some physical kind who are to be either elders or deacons. But He does, he does tell us people, view, inspect, have a look, and follow the stipulations, and in that way God will guide you. I want to I want you to go with me to Ezra 8, because I thought about this, and I, I felt there was something there of great importance. I did a series on Ezra in recent times, as you're aware. I hope you still remember I did that. But Ezra chapter 8 and verse number 15. It's a very important verse. And notice what Ezra writes here. I gathered them together. Ezra chapter 8, 15. I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava, 
and there, and there abode we in tents three days, and I viewed the people and the priests. Now, he's having a look. And notice what he says, what he writes. Found there none of the sons of Levi. What he's saying is, what he's writing is, that when he had a look at the congregation here in this instance in, in Ezra 8, remember what's happening here, they're leaving Babylon, they're going back to Jerusalem, and Ezra has a look and he finds no Levites. Now who were the Levites? The Levites were like the deacons of the Old Testament church. The priests were the elders, so to speak, of the Old Testament church. And Ezra looked, and there were no deacons. To put it in that language, there were no, there were no Levites. They're the counterpart of the New Testament deacons. So he gives a, a directive here, verse 16. I'll not read the whole verse, but go down to the end of the verse. Or in the whole verse, he, he's, he sent for certain men, and he sent them with the commandment, verse 17. And the very end of verse 17 is the words, contains the words I want you to notice that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. And interestingly and importantly, the word ministers is from the Hebrew verb that means to serve. So they're looking for Levites who occupied that secondary office. They worked alongside the priests but they were men who, who worked at the physical level, the material level of the house of God and so on. They are definitely the Old Testament deacons. And the word here says in verse 17 that they would bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. In other words, these men were somewhere already serving. They were needed at that moment to be ministers or servants in God's house, and they are found as a result of something. Look at verse 18. Notice this. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, 18, and on and on it goes. They got a whole army of Levites before they had finished. And so what you find is that they're looking for men to minister. There's a depletion here. There's a need here. There's a deficiency in this passage. And the, the answer came because God's hand was on them. And my friend, there, there's the vital thing. You want to think, you want to look at the stipulations that God lays down for these men? And as you have God's hand on you, He will guide you. You pray for the guiding hand of God on your soul, on your thinking, on your mind. Look for that to come from heaven, that the Lord will guide you in identifying what He stipulates about those who would be deacons. Going back to Acts 6, I only can mention the stipulations. But you know, in many ways they speak for themselves because our time here is well on. What are some of the stipulations or the conditions that were expected of the deacon? Characteristics, if you will, whatever way you want to put it. Well, there is their humility. Because it says there in Acts 6, that verse 3, Look ye out among you. Uh, from among yourselves is what the words mean. They were, as I've been indicating, they were part of the congregation of believers already, but they had to be sought out. It wasn't where certain men paraded themselves and came along and, and marched before the whole church and said, here we are, look at us, where are the men you need? No. They actually were kind of hidden because they were marked by humility. They weren't pushing themselves forward. Now, I know there's a struggle with this, because you might feel in your soul, the Lord's calling me to this. I'm letting my name stay. And then you, you maybe feel a bit guilty. Am I, am I being proud and letting my name stay? No, my dear friend, you are not. Because if the Lord's dealing with your heart about this, you must let your name stay on. If he's leading you in that direction, 
then your name stays on. As far as you can discern, He's leading you in that direction. So there's a balancing there. But what I am saying is that humility must govern the life of the deacon. And may I just say this as a way of, of illustrating what I am saying. Verse 2 shows you here that there was a large congregation. No, verse 1, I mean, the, the, the disciples were multitudes. A large congregation. But a limited number were chosen. Seven. Why seven? I have no idea. I know seven is a number in the Bible that marks completeness and so on, but we're not going to get into that. It doesn't even matter. But the point is, out of the huge multitude of disciples, seven were chosen. That means that some men were not chosen. You may let your name go forward. You earnestly believe that the Lord's leading you in that direction, and that is fine. We have to have a list of names to present to the congregation. As I intimated briefly last week, not every man who's on the list, final list of names, will be elected. Because God guides in all this. And when that happens, men who aren't chosen, who've had their names put forward, are to accept that with the same humility that's to mark those who are chosen. And I say that for a very important reason. In my experience over many years, now it never has happened here, I want to add that, I have known men who let their names go forward and they were not chosen and then they left the church. Does that demonstrate they were not ready for the office to begin with? And the initial matters of dealing with all this Humility wasn't there. Otherwise, it is said, while the Lord has spoken, I accept as well, and I leave it there. That's the way it should be. So there's humility. There's integrity. It says men of honest report. That word, there's one word there, honest report, in the original language. It means born witness to by others not only in the church, but outside the church. If you turn quickly to 1 Timothy 3, where I read earlier, in verse number 10, it says this, Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And the word blameless doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean the absence of a charge. And so what? The church wants as men in this office, just like the eldership, because the qualifications are basically the same. The stipulations are basically the same. And so inside the church or outside the church, nobody should be able to point a finger at that man and say that morally or some other way, ethically, spiritually, or whatever, I can bring a charge against that man. That's what the Lord is telling us. Lies marked by integrity. Now, there's no such thing as a perfect deacon, just as there's no such thing as a perfect minister. No. But there must be integrity. A desire to do things right. We all can make mistakes, and we all do make mistakes. But that's a different thing from what Paul is talking about here. And so, there is... Humility, there's integrity, there's maturity. Wisdom is mentioned here. It says, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. We need wise men, men who therefore uh, are judicious in how they handle things. They are discreet. They're able to handle situations in a manner that will lead to the well-being of the work of God. They have wisdom. And that is why the Lord tells His people, look at the man's public life and his private life. And if he's able to run things at home or run things in his job or whatever area you look at him or look at all those areas, well then he demonstrates he has got maturity for the office of deacon. There's also here, as you will see, capability. Look at verse 3, and it says at the end of that verse, 
whom we may appoint over this business. They're capable of doing it. And I want you to get a hold of that one. They had some experience, these men, these seven men, of working with people, of making decisions that would be beneficial to whatever their job was every day or whatever area they, they, they operated in. They were capable of doing that. What you have really where it says, whom we may appoint over this business, is what I like to describe as men who have got sanctified common sense. In everyday life, they display common sense. And in the work of God, common sense is needed to do what the Lord would have us to do. Now, those, that's a very quick summary of those stipulations because my time is gone. But anyhow, take heed to God's Word. Pray over it. Make it the basis of your choice. Look for men who are already demonstrating that they have the qualities that are essential and that they're therefore men who will serve the Lord in the way I outlined for you in my opening point. Serve the Lord with fervor, with zeal, with a Christ-glorifying objective. Having all these stipulations in place that God lays down, therefore men who can work one with the other within the confines of a deaconry, a deacon board. May God guide, may the Spirit lead, and may God's will be done. Let us bow together in prayer, and let's commit our way to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that the blessed Spirit will take Thy Word that we have thought about and considered today and use it. O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy hand upon this congregation down through many, many years, and for all those who have served Thee, every man, every woman, in the work of Jesus Christ. And we thank Thee for all those who are still serving and seeking to do a work for the Master. O Lord, out of this body of people, we pray that Thou wilt bring forth Thy men for this office, and may Your people be guided in that way to that end. And so bless us today. Bless the ministry, we pray, of the Lord. Bless the preaching of the gospel. Remember, Mr. Stewart, this evening, Lord, fill him with the Holy Ghost. Bring out many under the Word. Bring in sinners. Fill these seats out with those who need the Lord. No God, may the whole, the whole labor and service of us as a body of Your people always converge on that one essential goal of the extension of God's kingdom, the glorifying of our Savior, the pulling down of the strongholds of the devil, the onward march of Christ's church. Hear as we pray, and part us now with thy blessing. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and for his sake and for his glory. Amen.